Okay, so we're now recording. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of uh, Such a Gorgeous Paradox. And today I have a very special guest, um, and uh, you'll know why in a, in a minute. But, um, but like I'm doing with all my guests, I, I would actually like to ask Bruce to introduce himself and say hello to everyone. Uh, hello, uh, I'm Bruce, uh, Bruce Howard Bailey. Um, I've been a drama therapist for a considerable amount of time, longer than I care to remember. Um, I have been associated with the executive of Badtha for an, a number of years, nearly since 1997. Um, so my life has been mainly drama therapy, uh, even though I haven't been a full-time drama therapist. Um, I trained in a, in a, a training that doesn't exist anymore uh, at St Albans, uh, which was actually Hertfordshire. Mm -hmm. um, and I had some of the best teachers, and I'm really sorry that doesn't exist anymore. It's a very, very, it was a very, very good course. Um, and I live in London, and I practice in Camden Town, and now at the moment I have quite a busy practice online. I'm hoping to go back into the room whenever we can. That, that's yeah. a, is that enough of an introduction? Yes, it, yeah, it's great. Thank you. And I think I guess for the for our listeners who don't know, Batha is the British Br British British Association, Association of Drama Therapists. Yes, yeah. and um, and that's also how one of the ways in which we know each other. I also like to as you all know, to disclose sort of how I know everyone that I'm interviewing. Uh, and um, and Bruce and I have a, a very interesting connection. Uh, obviously, besides Bruce being, having been a chair and a member of the executive of that, of our professional association, um, we, we have worked together at, at a keynote presentation for one of our annual conferences. And we have been a client and therapist. You know, Bruce has been, uh, was my therapist for uh, many years during my training, as well as after I graduated for another couple of years. Um, and that's I, why I think that this conversation feels quite special to me. I, I don't, I don't know people. Yeah, I don't know that people have much access actually to conversations between uh, therapists and their clients that are available out there. So this might be quite interesting. Not that we're, we're going to talk about my therapy necessarily, but <laughs> uh, I thought it was uh, an interesting thing to mention. And I also wanted to be transparent and, and say that actually part of the funding I have for this podcast um, was awarded by our professional association with a fund that actually has Bruce's name on it, even though Bruce had no idea that uh, I had applied and I had uh, been uh, granted some some funds to 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 do this project. Uh, but I just wanted to put that out there in case anyone has any questions. <laughs> um, yeah, and 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 actually, Bruce, I was really surprised you you really didn't know. So I was really, it was interesting to me that when I was awarded the, the grant that a few days later, I got an email from you congratulating me. So I actually, <laughs> actually didn't know you hadn't been part of the selection process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the, 
do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that yeah. Moment? yeah. That moment. That moment was hugely wonderful for me. Mm. Um, it's called the Bruce Howard Bailey Fund, but I don't do anything for it except many, um, a few years ago, I had the idea that drama therapy should reach different kinds of audiences. And there was like called drama therapy at the edge so that we, to attract different parts of our world and our life, mm. it was a bit kind of justice therapy uh, seemed a bit narrow. And I thought it would be really good inspiration to kind of have a fund, to fund people to do that work on the edge. And then I got very ill and I couldn't afford to give the money to Badza because I didn't work for a year and a half. Mm. And then the executive said, okay, well, we'll have it anyway in your name. So mm. I don't have anything to do with it. I don't actually accept my name. Yeah. And um, when you told me that you got, got the Bruce Howard Bailey Fund, I was very, very, very pleased uh, because, and this is for, for the audience as well, mm. um, uh, I suppose this is a very special interview for me too. It's not like, because uh, you have been a client of mine, Ryan, and um, uh, I know you in those different ways that you described. Um, but also uh, there is a kind of, I mean, I'm a psychodynamic, psych psychoanalytic drama therapist, and I call myself psycho-spiritual now uh, mm. because I have psychodynamics, but I also deal with spirituality. And I remember um, there was a time when you were involved in the Kabbalah mm -hmm. and looking at esoteric literature. Yeah. And, um, I, and I feel I share a whole different number of dimensions with you. Mm -hmm. uh, which makes it a more special interview for me as well. So there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for, for mentioning that. Uh, it's definitely something we're probably might touch uh, during the conversation as well. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, and thanks for letting people know what the fund is. Uh, and I think, um, yeah, it's a very special fund uh, uh, for people to to think outside the box and, and work at the edge of uh, what our practice uh, may be. Um, I, I also, I'm asking sort of a, a bit of an icebreaker question to everyone. Uh, and, and I'm just wondering what, what, what was the last song you listened to uh, that you can think of just now? You're asking me? Yes. <laughs> the last song I listened to? Yeah. Oh, baby, baby, it's a wild world. Okay. Hard yes. to get by just upon a smile. Mm. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Cat Stevens. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and also, because I, I came up with this title for the, for the podcast, Such a Gorgeous Paradox, which means something to me, but I'm also quite curious about what, what that expression is evoking in people. Um, so when you think of the expression, such a gorgeous paradox in relation to maybe life in general or your life in particular, what comes up for you? Well, it's uh, essential to, to, to my understanding of life because it's, it, uh, I'm, I'm, because I was born in India and I'm Anglo-Indian, mm -hmm. uh, I feel a little bit like that Taoist sign uh, because I'm mixed ethnicity and mm -hmm. for nearly 40% of my DNA is Tamil, which is South Indian mm -hmm. on my mother's side. And uh, because of that, that BAME 
a thing. You know, it's a little bit like uh, the white dot in the black circle and black dot in the white circle. And therefore the paradoxical, in life we are in death, in death we are in life, in healing we hurt. When we want to change something, we're inviting people to destroy something about themselves because we're, we're inviting them to transform something. That means we're inviting them to get rid of something. That's we, that we're we are inviting them to you know, uh, queer something mm -hmm. in, in their patch, as mm -hmm. it were. Um, to, to, uh, and as, as, a, as a queer drama therapist, I kind of many years ago wrote a paper called Feeling Queer in Drama Therapy, which was using the idea of feeling awkward in drama therapy, but mm -hmm. also spoiling something in drama, because we're asking people to spoil something that may be their comfort zone. Yeah. We're asking people to look at their belief systems and actually say, hey, look, I can take control of some things in my life. I don't have to believe other people's stories about me. So in that sense, we are giving them, <laughs> facilitating their healing, but encouraging them to hurt themselves. So that's a, a paradox. Mm. Um, the fact that we are human beings, but we are expected as therapists, expected I ideally, people have the view that we are shut down as human beings, but actually it's within the relationship that a psychoanalytic therapy certainly would work for me in the mm. relationship to have an, uh, a, a building of trust. And that in itself gets lost from time to time. Uh, trust doesn't come on demand, you lose it. And then you work at gaining it back again. It's like love. You lose love, you have to work at gaining it back again. And um, that's very, the whole thing is paradoxical. Life is that. Yeah. So gorgeous paradox. Uh, why is it gorgeous? Um, because, because it's life and life is, you know, that, that's what it is. Life is gorgeous. Uh, whatever we may say, you know, the, the <laughs> when I think of the gorgeous paradox, it's like, agitation you know we say we're agitated we're angry we're angst ridden but actually that's also excited mm. that excites us the delicious feelings of rage yeah. you know the delicious feelings of hatred uh, we get excited by the drama drama is a paradox mm. you know we have joy we have tragedy we've got we have the two masks so at the same time so it's yeah. synchronistic. I think it's a wonderful title, but it does need thinking about a bit because yes. and it also takes things away from that box that this is therapy. Mm. We can't trip. We can't go outside this box. This is the frame. And actually the frame is uh, even within the session. It's not just what's said. What's said is important. What's seen is important. It's what's not said that's important. Mm. It's what's not conscious that is important. And that is where my psycho-spiritual thing comes in. Uh, the, the paradox is that we live in a world which is sensible or sensory, and that's by our five senses, and that's materialistic science, mm -hmm. but we live in a super-sensible world as well, a super-sensory world. And when we say think, and when we say imagine, and when we say dream, we're going out of the sensible. We're going out of the sensory. None of our five senses can tell us about imagination. Mm. Thought is outside the five senses, but it's vital. <laughs> so it's as vital to us as blood and as feelings. So we are a paradox. Yeah. Psycho-spiritual physical paradox. Mm. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that answer. And 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 because you've mentioned it a, a couple of times, when did you feel you started? Because you said you, you started using the 
psycho-spiritual perhaps label or identity uh, when when did you feel that changing for you okay uh, it changed for me very definitely oh, well i suppose it's always been there because mm. um, i was very aware coming to the west from india i was in india for 20 years before I came here. Mm -hmm. So all the mythology I had, the ways of looking at life were both Christian on the one hand and Hindu on the other hand. Mm -hmm. And the, the Shiva, Krishna and Christ just kind of mixed together. And I began to dwell as a teenager on the name Krishna and the name Christ. And I thought there was a familiarity between the sound. Mm -hmm. And of course, Krishna comes from uh, uh, the realm of the gods every so often. He is an incarnation of Vishnu, and he comes from the world of the gods whenever the world is in trouble. Vishnu comes in an incarnation. Krishna is that. He comes to the world to bring light. And so does the idea of the Christ comes to the world, and so does Osiris. And so, I mean, even in the Greek and even in the uh, uh, European uh, uh, pantheons, and all, there is always the force that comes down and manifests. And so I was always that way inclined from a mm. kid. And then when I came to England, um, I became a drama therapist because I was a youth theatre director. Mm. And it was all, it was drama, it was drama therapeutic. It was yeah. Uh, in a in a, a place in Shoreditch in Hackney, and I was a new theatre director there for about ten years, and we were doing this wonderful work, giving people a voice, empowering them, enhancing their self esteem. A lot of what now is accepted as art and health, for instance, mm. were, mm -hmm. and they were getting very. Some of them went to drama school. Some of them improved, and they were from very you know, difficult backgrounds. They were having they were having their own struggles, but yeah. you know. <laughs> we're not telling them who really are you you know can you get your own story here can you leave all this pain some uh, to some of it behind because there's mm. going to be more on the way <laughs> there's always going to be some pain come along yeah. how can you be resilient so i looked in the papers and i found this course in st Albans. Mm. um i was interviewed by some very beautiful drama therapists whom everybody knows who i won't <laughs> mention um uh, and um that's what got me involved in that. So in that sense, I've always been that way inclined. But yeah. you asked me, when did I start describing myself as mm. that? Well, in, in about 2012, when I was chair of Badna mm -hmm. at that time, and I, I read a book that was written, I believe, in the early noughties by Isabel Clark. Now she, uh, she she belonged to the um, uh, NHS and she was she was a consultant with the NHS and she she wrote a book called Psychosis and um, Spirituality, mm. which was uh, a, a book that changed my view on what we were to do because she was saying the, the disturbance Isabel Clark came upon was um, the fact that a lot of her psychotic clients would come out with the uh, um, the kind of things that were well documented in spiritual literature, you know, in mystical literature, mm. in people like Rumi, in people like, you know, the, the, the Edda, the, 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 the Scandinavian mythology, the, 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 the Rig Veda and all that stuff from ancient literature, spiritual literature. Yeah. And some of the experiences that they would have also are paralleled in spiritual experiences, the Joan of Arc and the voices of St. Catherine. You know, mm. you, 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 it's just there. And she started the network, you know, the, um, uh, within the NHS, which mm -hmm. then I, d I don't know whether it still functions or not. But that book 
psychosis and spirituality altered the way. And then I started doing this thing. I, I also got to know a uh, uh, Jungian psychologist, Jungian psychotherapist in, um, in the States called Jean Houston, Dr. Jean Houston, who was Jungian, but she was doing this, what she, what she called sacred psychology. Uh, where she went into um, various uh, parts of one mm. and uh, delving into the, the Sufi idea of the beloved and the soul is the beloved and, and how we separate from the beloved, we find that again. And that somehow dovetailed with my ideas that I was beginning to have in my clients that A, they were looking for love, they were looking for love in themselves. They were looking for that bit of them that wants to belong to, to, to something, to mm. be there, to, to, to generate something, to be a creative, collaborative creator in the universe. And, and then I said, are we actually tapping, are we actually accessing our clients to their resources? Mm. Or are we only ac accessing some of their resources, which is their mind and their thought and what they can do and their skills, which is all personality based? Yeah. But there are resources deep, deep within our beings. And do we go there? Mm. And therefore meditation becomes important. Spiritual literature becomes important. Stories that you were told when you were a child, not religion. Yeah but the spiritual vibrations of things like that idea of the tree of life yeah. and the idea of the different um, sephira uh, around, you know, so you, you, so that became part of my practice. And I started this thing called workshops in what I called drama therapy in the new paradigm. Mm. And that I did the number two or three years with drama therapy in the new paradigm. And then I, cause I was always a Goethean. I always read Goethe and I was very inspired by the, the writings of Goethe and Rudolf Steiner. And I said, well, this is the time now when I've got to make sense of my Vedantic background with the Hindu background, my Buddhist background and the Taoist and the anthroposophy and drama therapy. And they've got to come together and there's a Christology that goes with that because then Krishna and Christ to me became metaphors mm. for the higher aspect of ourselves, which I think, uh, and also the idea that we work in polarities yeah. and that's not enough. That, I mean, you know, in organizations, every organization has this, this or this, mm -hmm. the binary, which, you know, I mean, what what we're doing in, in sexuality and in gender is yeah. also challenging this binary thing that is this or the, and actually that, that's tr not right that's not true mm. there's always the third there's always transforming this and this together becomes something more then we transform it we transcend it yeah. otherwise we're just doing we're in a tennis match and we're the bloody ball <laughs> you know we're yeah. the ball in this table tennis thing uh, until we said, now hang on, what do we learn from this necessary badness? What is the blessing from this necessary goodness? Mm. And how can both the necessary badness challenge, mm. make us stronger, and the necessary goodness give us the resources yeah. to go somewhere else with this? So there's a third position with yeah. everything. Yeah. But that's that's why I started to describe myself as psycho spiritual. Yeah, yeah. And um yeah, I really liked what what you how you shared that because um 
even looking back at our process, I remember, I remember actually when you began welcoming my, you know, my then practice and, and beliefs around Kabbalah. And um, I felt so, um, it felt, um, it felt really welcoming to me because I, at the, um, in my first year, and I think I started seeing you in my second year of my training, but in my first year, I tried to write this essay where I was trying to write about spirituality and therapy. And um, at the time, you know, I can look back and say, I didn't do a, a really good job of arguing for that. Um, but because of the feedback at the time, I felt, oh, this is not welcome here this this kind of conversation and so I didn't um, and then it felt really special to have you ask about it in therapy and welcome it in therapy and then I felt oh this is something I can actually integrate and can actually merge with everything else that I am and everything else that I believe you know it doesn't have to be something that's on the side that I only do on Saturdays or only believe or you know on certain days of the week um, that yeah. gives me so much joy. It mm. really gives me so much joy. I'm feeling quite emotional because, um, yes, it wasn't welcome in those days. It was like you're bringing something of religion in here without mm. understanding that actually, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it, it, it is something universal. There are things, I mean, people used to say to me, well, you can't take an Indian story. You know, you're abusing the Indian culture. And I said, but I'm Anglo-Indian. I'm half in. Yeah, but you're not holy and you don't look it, and you don't sound it, so you can't be. I said, but I am, you know. I mean, when I had my mitochondrial DNA done, I mean, every single person in the database is a South Indian with a South Indian name living in South India. There's not a single European name that comes from my mitochondrial database that is related to me, which is really strange, mm. you know, but admittedly, that's only the names on the database. So there is this thing about hearing you say that, you know, that it wasn't welcome. And I think in, the, in my early workshops, there were only two or three people who would tentatively come in and they would say in the workshop, uh, Saturday workshop, they would say, I feel very uncomfortable with this word soul. Why do we have to use the word soul? You know, I was saying, because, okay, don't use the word soul, use the word psyche. It doesn't matter what word you're using, but mm. we do know what we're talking about. Yeah. And we're talking about something other than our body. You know, it's that play. Why is it called soul music, for God's sake? Because it, it takes us into a place where we feel pain and joy, sorrow and sadness, and it's all good. It's all life. Mm. And that was changing something around me. It wasn't very easy to do. And yeah. the fact that you felt welcome in my sessions with you it gives me enormous joy because yet again, I mean, we're talking about the gay stuff, you know, and I know you're you're you're, you're part of the um, um, subcommittee. Yeah. Oh, I can't can't remember the <laughs> the inclusion and visibility get, yeah, subcommittee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, you got to excuse my seventy-year-old thing. Uh, there's um, there was a time when you couldn't actually mention uh, have a gay thing going on either. Mm -hmm. in your practice. Yes, you could be gay. There were a number of drama therapists who were gay, but they didn't do work about gay. Yeah. Because uh, the Freudian classic position used to be, this is, this is an infant, this is not a, this is not a, a an adult position. Mm. Homosexual position is not, there are unresolved sexual issues. It's not fully mature genital sex. Mm -hmm. And 
And that always gave me trouble. So when I did my feeling queer and drama therapy, you know, I brought it there and one or two drama therapists, gay drama therapists, he's coming to their Bruce. That's why I like you, the fact that you're a drama, you've really taken a risk. Thank you for talking on our behalf. And, you know, and I, I said, I wasn't, I was just wanting to get the queer thing out. Yeah. You know, uh, so yes, I mean, th that's why <laughs> it, it, drama therapy at the edge, because it's the edge of what, it's an, it's an artificial edge. Yes, we need boundaries, mm. but that's a different issue. Yeah. But this is about who are we really? Who are yeah. we? That big P Plato question, you know? <laughs> know thyself yeah you know? because um i should know this actually since i'm interviewing you but do you remember the the date of that article when it was published the feeling queer no but i've got it on my website so if you go to feeling queer and drama therapy yeah. on my website it'll tell you that 1999 maybe something mm. like that perhaps? yeah it, that does sound familiar because i remember when i was writing my dissertation and looking for uh, articles that discussed it was the, the only one I it guess. was the only one still <laughs> and i was writing my dissertation in 2014 yeah. so yeah yes yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i remember another drama therapist who was part of the um uh subcommittee said bruce it was always you look up drama therapy queer gay drama it's only you it's yeah. you, you, you know, and so when when you when you came along mm. and people, other people as well yeah. came along and were my clients and, you know, or, and, and even those who were not my clients, I thought, wow, that, that something's growing here. And that's so good. And not just the gay male thing. It was the bisexual thing, the transgender yeah. issue, uh, the non-binary thing was coming out. Mm -hmm. And OK, you know, it, <laughs> people made take objection to some of those things and say this is not classic but you know but hey you know we're living in 2021 now nearly yeah yeah <laughs> might as well get there <laughs> yeah uh, get get done with 2020 yeah. i um i think for for context i, I just want to quickly take a step back because when you're saying uh, you're still working in, in 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 drama as a youth in youth theater um what what sort of year is that just for context uh i tell you exactly what it was it was in hoxton hall in shoreditch in hackney um in 1983 mm -hmm. to 1990 okay which is when i got my first drama therapy job in barnet mental hospital mm -hmm. it used to be called barnet mental hospital then Okay. Um, uh, but but in the meantime, so my, my career changed as a result of doing the course. Yeah, I just yeah. straight went from drama to, but but I also say you know there's something special about drama therapy, mm. which is not therapeutic theatre. Yeah, which is not the therapeutic aspect of drama and art and health, and which is not drama as remedial education. Mm or what used to be called remedial education, special education. It's drama therapy is therapy. It's a different thing. And I had some interviews with some drama students, one last week and one before last week, who were doing their dissertation on drama therapy as mm -hmm. an alternative career move, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, and I was saying, well, yes, it, it's valid, but do understand that it is not the therapeutic aspects of drama. They are there anyway, you know. Youth theatre, 
they're there anyway, cultivating yeah. very therapeutic things for people. Uh, but that's not what it is. It doesn't make you feel good. It, ne- it sometimes makes you feel awful. Yes. Because you're asking people to rip defense mechanisms away. Not rip them, that's a bit too dramatic. But to dismantle things for themselves mm-hmm. and revisit things of some of their comfort zones. And they may be very reluctant to do that. Yeah. So they go into this thing which we call quite flippantly uh, uh, um, resistance. You know, but actually it may not be resistant that's maybe that's the only way they can authentically come to therapy by saying i don't want to do this yeah yeah and and did you did you go into drama therapy at the time uh thinking yeah i guess my question is what were you thinking in going to drama therapy what did you think it was versus perhaps what it eventually became for you i was very naive i was very very naive so i thought i was going to learn this thing about therapy and go back to hoxton and i will use it in my youth theater Mm -hmm. and i did for a while my very first placement was there yeah. But it wasn't part of the drama group. It was drama therapy at Hoxton. Mm. It was a, a, a branch. Um, and it was with it was with young people because that, that was my field. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? So uh, I so I thought it would be there to help people, not me, of course. Of course not. <laughs> I was so naive, you know. And it was as a result of that I discovered, oh, my narcissism, which is, I've had an awful lot of time to deal with that. And I hope I've got that under my belt. My solipsism, everything was about me all the time. Uh, The circumstances of the the myths that I had received about me by my family Mm. and how to struggle. And actually, hey, these are other people's stories about, this is not mine. (laughs) So the owning of one's own life, that Mm. all came much later to me. And that was the only time I've ever worked at the NHS uh, mm. with the Mount Barlow Hospital, because I did find that, and I still do find this uh, more and more now, that the role of the health professional, the role of the therapist, and the role of the artist, and the role of the educator, these are four completely separate roles. Mm-hmm. And we may avoid the role of the educator by saying, that's me as a teacher, but this is me as a therapist. And people do have a struggle with that when they're a student. Yeah. Uh, teachers have a different remit to therapists. Mm. Uh, they may also be okay with the, um, the, the therapist and the actor because you know, now I'm being an actor, but now I'm doing drama in order to work something out with us as in a relationship. But the one that tends to stick is who are you when you're being a therapist? Uh, Are you being a different sort of person when you're being a therapist to what you are the rest of your life? And actually the answer of that should probably be yes. Mm. You know, I'm I'm being about seven different kinds of therapists with different situations, different Mm. people, because you're being a different. It's like we were taught this in in St. Albans. I remember look at at a one to one therapy session as a one-person show with a one-person audience. Mm. And the questions there are, at any point, who is the performer and Mm -hmm. who is the watcher? Mm. Because the client will come with a whole bunch of roles and go in and out of them, depending on their presentation. And the therapist will have a whole lot of roles that they will bring uh, 
I'm going to be understanding. I'm going to I'm going to cut this short. I'm going to hold the time. I'm not going to hold the time. I'm going to be indulgent. All these different things. Mm-hmm. And people say, oh, but that's manipulation. Well, I'm sorry, but you know, yes, it is. And people don't like to think of therapists therapists being manipulators oh that's manipulative well actually yes Mm. you hear someone speak and something in you're saying yeah but what's not being said yeah why is this person doing this is this person trying to tell me something and which is why i favor lacan the freudian part comes in with lacan for me you know trying to get the audience the 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 client audience (laughs) trying to get the client to understand what they mean Mm when they say, I feel whatever it is, or I think this or this is, what do they mean by that? And sometimes they don't know. Mm. And you've got to try and clear it for yourself and try and get them to understand what is it. So Lacan was very good with this, you know, what, what is it that we are saying in our language and therapy? And I know people say, well, that's too linguistic. That's too, yeah, well, maybe it is. Mm. But we've only got the words to go by unless we're doing non-verbal yeah. drama therapy, unless we're doing dance therapy, unless we're doing yeah, joy. Yeah. That's a different thing. So, yeah. But, you know, I, I consider, I guess, I guess because I'm bilingual, um, I consider language quite important because I can see how how the world changes depending on which language I speak uh, yeah. sometimes. And... Um, and you mentioned earlier the the point of personal myths and and just as you were describing, you know, the Lacan approach. You know, we use that approach a lot in my in my process, and that was really helpful for me to understand. Oh yeah, why why do I say these things about myself, or why do I say these things about the world? Like, what do I mean by them? And understanding that a lot of it is is was given by to me by others rather than me having, I guess, a more, um, I don't know, a, ver- a, a vision of the world that's mine. You know, yeah. I, I felt like I was, you know, you, I guess you really helped me see that I was, a lot of my life was lived through someone else's myth of me rather than my own myth of myself. And in, in doing that, you know, you did experience discomfort. Mm, plenty. <laughs> and, 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 but that shows something was happening to you. You were allowing mm. something to happen within you. Whereas wh- why I made a distinction between the health professional and mm. the therapist is that it doesn't always come when one's talking about health professional. Mm. There's a there's an idea, I'm not saying this is so, and I'm not saying this is true of every health professional, but there is the background assumption that there is something called health that is a given thing, and we know it when it's happening, and the rest of it is illness. Well, actually, I don't buy that. That's, we're in a binary there. I don't buy that. I go, well, there are different kinds of unhealth. There are mm. different kinds of, dis- that's why I call it discomfort rather than disease. Uh, if you split up dis-ease, mm. it's kind of discomfort. So the discomfort may be in the body. It may be a physical, physiological. Then there's a medical condition. Yeah. There may be a brain condition, which that also will be a medical condition. 
but discomfort helped is on a on a gradation and there, there are things that can be unhealthy or uncomfortable but you manage that or you live with that or that takes you somewhere else or you give something up or you, you know you say i can't eat so much food otherwise i'll get fight uh, i'll get obese and or so but that's a found thing it's not something you get given like 10 commandments there's no personal growth that way mm. you know it, and and one of the difficulties is nowadays and this is my fear about the profession is that the idea of drama therapy or therapy exploring something with the client you don't know what the object might be at the end you don't know where you're necessarily going you don't know where the goal is going to be because the client is finding out and exploring things for the client self that aspect of therapy could get lost completely if the idea that we've got to know where we're going we've mm. got to know our objective we've got to know all the steps along the way and we've got to tick that it's happened at every single session yeah when it gets that diagrammatic when it gets that measured yep it's not about we've lost the soul there mm -hmm. we've lost the spirit there yeah and we've gone into the measuring of behavior mm. which you know and, and not not just that <laughs> we've got to be very careful of these kind of evaluations because you know me, as a supervisor me or you can only be as good as what your supervisee is telling you yes what's going on in the room mm -hmm. you don't actually know what's going on in the room so i mean i could come to you as your client Right. And I could say, oh, yeah, this client is doing this and that's wonderful. And he's getting the message. And yes, he's not drinking anymore. And you would say, oh, that's really good. Yeah. And I'll go say, oh, Ryan said I was very good. Mm -hmm. you know? But I could have just been giving you a rosy colored look at my I, I'm not wouldn't be necessarily intentionally lying. No, but I'd be giving you a rosy colored look. And it's a little bit like that with the kind of measurements that we're supposed to be taking as health professionals, mm -hmm. you know, that call list, you know, and we yeah. only go by what the client is telling us. So you tick that, the client ticks that, and the client may be ticking that because, hey, they want this to finish quickly. They don't want to feel they're wasting their time. They want you to feel that all those little unconscious processes just mm -hmm. go out the window. And that's my fear. I'm not saying it's happened yet. But that's my fear about where we might go with drama therapy if we lose the artistic side of our mm. input if we lose the aesthetic and that means we lose the soulful side of what we're doing yeah you know? yeah um on that note what just for our audience to know um what kind of um client have you worked with what kind of environment have you worked in because um i feel i feel perhaps more than other more traditional therapies, drama therapy does happen in, in quite um, varied spaces and places. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, do you want to talk a bit about that? Okay, so uh, most recently now is just private practice. Yeah. Most recently now, I don't have I've hardly any students. I have a few students, mm -hmm. but mainly therapists mm -hmm. who come to me for supervision or for process consultation or for therapy. Yeah. So th these are all people who are referred, uh, but the uh, to answer that question, I'm going to have to talk issue based. You see, nowadays, mm. so it's I've got a lot of people recovering from addictions, mm. but that's not why they're in therapy. They're in therapy because of themselves. 
Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of people who are struggling with the difficulties of being gay. Mm -hmm. But that's not because they're gay. That's because of the difficulties that they're being gay. Um, I have, but that's my private practice now. Uh, But client groups I've worked with, I've worked with sex workers. All of them, without a single exception, had huge amounts of trauma from uh, domestic abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, and sexual abuse, and most surprisingly, spiritual abuse, where they were made to do certain things Mm. because uh, there was a whole ritualistic uh, uh, abuse system that was going on, ritual sex, Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was that spiritually abusive. I think mm-hmm. um, so, and the, the, that so that one's a major client group of mine, okay. and we uh, that that had a lot of issues that had uh, anorexia, bulimia, uh, addictions, um, self harming, self cutting, a, a whole range came with that, yeah. and usually they, they were boys, they were girls, and they were people who were not sure of whether they were boys or girls and that's where i learned the difference between for myself between something that they used to call intergender and transgender mm-hmm. so the intergender say no i am going to i don't want to have the body of a woman but i don't necessarily want to have a penis so i'm going to uh, and that was di- medical problematized as body dysmorphia you know which immediately puts it into the negative slot Mm. It says there's something wrong with you, you know, where somebody who says, and I did have a client here, I don't want my breasts. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to become a man. Uh, I don't want to be a boy girl. I just, I just don't want my breasts. I don't want to have this yeah. feminine gender in my face because I don't feel that. I don't feel that. Mm. And okay. <laughs> One of the things that person had to go through was, how do you deal with yourself? What is this meaning? What is this body thing actually meaning to you? So we're not actually dealing with the, the problem of, of having breasts. We're dealing with the who are you, which mm. brings us down to the deeper levels of discovering the inside of a, the sight, the spiritual part of the person. Yeah. Where does this come from? Where does this pain come from? Why is it there? Mm-hmm. And also, so that was a, 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 a huge client group of mine, and that lasted yeah. for quite a number of years. Yeah. Then the recoverers from alcohol and, and drug abuse, that became one of my major students became a big area of mine. Mm-hmm. But my others were uh, <laughs> people with undiagnosed pure OCD. Uh, they, someone would say, oh, maybe you have OCD, but it's not OCD. It's this constant rumination of fantasy thoughts of I am bad, I am bad, I am bad, I am bad. Mm. That became quite a lot. In, the, in recent years, that's become quite high. Uh, so, yes, uh, uh, oh, who else? Oh, yes, right at the beginning, my NHS work was with young people. Uh, social services, Hertfordshire social services, mm-hmm. and that was mainly uh, people with autism mm-hmm. uh, in the main, uh, and one or two people who were d- who were trying to find their identities. If that that um, Ericsson type thing, you know, identity as opposed to isolation, yeah, yeah. peer pressure, uh, breaking away from the parent, 
difficulty, all that stuff, finding themselves, all that stuff. But that was when I was my early days and in, in the in the hospital, Barney Hospital. That was psycho, it used to be called horrible word, please forgive me everybody, psychogeriatric it was called. Wow. Which nowadays would be obviously dementia or Alzheimer's or mm -hmm. something like that. But yeah, they, they would say, you know, oh Bruce, you're working the psychogeri ward today, you know, yeah. and I'd, I'd work on them for like a term, like three months or four months, and we have a group of 80 year olds. Yeah. Uh, part of that work included reminiscence groups, you know, where people uh, coming to the end of their lives and they are, there's nothing much to do for them to be jollied about, but mm. they could remember old things and they share those old things and remember when. And there was a kind of a camaraderie that was more a group, group activity. Yeah, rather yeah. than one-to-one -one. Yeah. so that that's the breadth of stuff yeah I've done. I'm, I'm, I'm curious um because you, you know you, you've mentioned you've been a therapist for a number of years and as you just described you've had lots of different experiences as a therapist um and I was curious because you were talking about the evolution of language of certain terms um how how has that been like uh for you um because I'm also thinking uh, about the queer community and LGBTQ community, even the the change of language within that community in the past five years has been quite enormous. Um, and I'm not, you know, I've only been practicing for about five years. I used to do youth work in that community. Uh, and I've seen in that fairly short period of time, quite a lot of change, even in language. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering how that's been like for you to... It's been very, 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 very interesting. Um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of bound by my generation, mm. I'm afraid. So I'm limited by that. And uh, I don't know whether you're aware, but I was in the first GLF uh, in LSE. I studied at the London School of Economics from 1971 to 1972 and I left in 1973 for two years and uh, GLF arrived in London in 1970 and we met the gay sorry for the gay liberation front mm -hmm. uh, it came from the states yeah. and there were two students from the London School of Economics who were in the states when it broke out in New York and in San Francisco which mm -hmm. was the Christopher Street Liberation Day when all the queens uh, the drag queens came out of the bars um, because they're uh, in their protest against police yeah. harassment and uh, provocateur also provocateurs um, and that was historic and monumental for me so this year of course uh, I don't know whether you know but uh, we had the we had gay pride we had uh, veterans of gay liberation I was there I was on the march uh, we met by the BBC we walked down oh, I'm feeling very emotional actually mm. Um, so I'm bound by that generation and uh, those words uh, I still think of it being gay uh, uh, when queer came along I felt that was a bit odd because queer was used detrimentally before that but then yeah. I said oh reclaiming oh yeah that's that's great we'll reclaim it let's change it uh, and push it out a little bit more on the uh, in October of this year was the first ever meeting of the gay liberation front in LSE, small bunch of people. And we went there, we had a vigil there with our 
little candlelights and people were talking, people from my contemporary, veteran contemporaries mm. who are still around uh, in little pockets. And that gave birth to a whole culture of commune living, looking at alternative ways in which gay people could look after their retirement, for instance, partnerships, marriages, all that sort of thing. Uh, but it was about liberation. It was about freedom. It wasn't justifying our equality with the world. Mm. We were saying we want the freedom to be who we are and we don't want the freedom to copy you. We yeah. don't want your relationship patterns to be our relationship. You, you're doing it because you have to reproduce it or you think you have to do it for economic reasons or whatever, whatever. So we want the freedom to either do that or not. We want the freedom to live communally. We want to live collaboratively or not. So there were, we want to, you know, be binary, we want to be bisexual, we want mm. to be whatever we want, we want to be whatever we want to be, and yeah. we don't want your stories onto us, onto us. So I had a big career with Gay Sweatshop, and uh, uh, at that time, that was, this, that was the 70s, obviously, and I found the language now, I find, I have to temper what I say. Uh, for instance, I find myself saying I belong to one of the LGBT communities. Mm. I can't say I am LGBT. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, because, and everyone says, uh, oh, are you LGBTQ? I said, no, I'm, I belong to one of those communities. Yeah. I might at some point belong to two of them, mm -hmm. you know, but I certainly don't belong to all of them because yeah. I'm not transgender, but yeah. I might identify. When I was a very, very young boy, I did identify as being girlish mm -hmm. you know and there were makeup I, because I was very pretty I played girls parts in plays and that kind of affected my identity you know I realized that if I wore a dress and put makeup on I looked very pretty but I didn't want to be a girl you yeah. know so there was that thing mm. um, I'm very aware now of the more not so much the language Ryan uh, I find the language absolutely fine because you, you know I, I stand for people calling themselves whatever they want to call themselves yeah. so we, we use whatever language makes us comfortable mm. and if another gay person makes us feel uncomfortable calling us something that they want to call me then I say actually you can use that for you I'm going to use this word for me mm -hmm. you know I don't want to, I don't want to use the word homosexual with especially with when the x is yeah. said in this as it's as if it's an s Mm -hmm. You know, homosexual. You know, yes. I, I don't want to do that mm. at all. But other people can do that if they wish. Yeah. You know, I in my heart I would say I'm gay. I, I would I would always say that. So, um, and when you say you know you're, I think that's the word you use that I'm I'm limited by my generation. Uh, what what do you mean by that? What do you think the limitations okay. are? Is it <laughs> People of my generation were very much against marriage mm -hmm. yeah. because we were also against monogamy. Sure. Because we came from a libertarian feminist anarchist perspective, yeah. more or less, mm -hmm. not a Marxist socialist perspective. So really, uh, my my colleague, there were a lot of people who were who weren't part of us, but my mm. generation, my friends, the people that I mix with, my groups were very libertarian, feminist, anarchist. You could put that yep. in that. So we were against patriarchy in that sense. Mm -hmm. We were very much against the racist element that yep. was very predominant in the patriarchy. Yeah. Uh, and certainly the the ordering of gay people's lives within certain bounds. We were saying, no, actually, no, no, no. So marriage now is respectable. And mm. 
actually a very, very good friend of mine who was very close to me when we were in college, uh, uh, eventually became an MP and uh, fought for the uh, uh, partnership, uh, gay partnership, mm -hmm. civil partnership, and got it passed. It was mm. very big in that respect. Yeah. Um, and I said, uh, I, I, <laughs> great, great. Uh, not for me. And that's not what we were about. We were not trying to be as good as the people around us. Or, and in that sense, my. so when people say, oh, have you and your partner never thought of marrying? Why haven't you thought of marrying? And, you know, don't you feel you should marry? So well, actually, no. Mm -hmm. And they said, but, you know, it's different for us. You know, we, we, we have a difference. I said, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not going to condemn you yeah. because, but, but in the seventies, it was, very dogmatic you know don't copy the straits mm -hmm. it was very binary as well you know that mm. in those days because we were we were pushing something yeah and to push that you have to be very didactic sometimes you know and say no we're not going to do that we refuse to do that yeah 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 so and that's what i mean by mm -hmm limited by my generation so younger people come and say but Bruce you know well, why, do, why, why don't you get married you know, so <laughs> why you know why yeah, you know, yeah. that, that goes against me but then it also goes against that part of my life I suppose I'm bound by those ideas yeah 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 mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing is the non-binary it, it is so good now mm. you know to have this choice you know it's all about choice in a way, I know people say, Bruce, you're a bit of a fascist, because I say, everyone's got a choice. They say, well, no, not everyone's got a choice. I say, yes, we have. There may be a choice to do something and not do something, but that's the choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It may be a very minimal choice. Mm -hmm. And actually, when we talk about choice, we talk about our personalities. You know, it's a personal choice. We Or, or not. So what comes to us in life isn't our, of our choice. That comes to us. Uh, we don't choose it necessarily but it comes to us but how we react to that is our choice yeah we can either give in and that's that's where the therapy comes in mm -hmm. you know uh, it's equally an issue in my opinion it's equally an issue for therapy if you can't take no for an answer if you just cannot take no for an answer and you've got to have your own way on every single thing and bang and bang and bang the same thing and say, yeah, it's never happening. It's never happening. Look, I'm I'm doing. Why are you doing the same thing over and over again? Is there something that you can transform? What does that mean to you? So that you can work through that process. So, yeah, that I find myself out of sync with some younger people. But the non-binary thing is wonderful. Mm. I think that's such a it's a bit difficult there with some people because you've got to think of the pronoun that someone wants to use about themselves yeah. how do they describe themselves mm -hmm. but that's only good yeah yeah you know, i think that's only good yeah it's interesting I, I, and you know i asked that because i i guess came of my gay age in a time where yeah things you know i think the movement if you want to call generalize the movement was very much about i guess more acceptance and about assimilating and and I always looked at um, perhaps the generation, the '70s, and even the '80s generation with the AIDS crisis, and and how um, also um, vocal that that generation was. Uh, I always I never quite related to that because they always 
struck me as a bit angry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but interestingly, in my own process, I guess, personal process of accepting anger as an emotion, even in my own life in general, and integrating that part of me that I can be angry and I can have rage and, uh, and the world doesn't end if, if I uh, express those things. Um, I've come to I've come to really understand those generations much better, uh, and in fact, um, currently I, I probably describe myself more like that than I am of the, you know, of of I I guess I relate more to that than with people who prefer to assimilate and prefer and and again like you like you said it's. Um, it's how people see themselves, how people choose to, to live uh, their lives and engage with others and interact with the world. But, but even within those categories, there are uh, uh, frictions from time to time. There are frictions. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And also the idea nowadays, more or less, that um, if you're... If you're I had to fight. This, this upset me in the 70s. If, if I, I can't be oppressive because I'm a gay man. Mm. Rubbish. Yeah. Absolute filth. No, not true. Of course, you can be one of the world's. I mean, look at what happened in Nazi Germany. You know, there were people who were gay who were officers in the Reich. Yeah. You know, who were. Awful, you know, and, and, and the worst regime, I suppose, in the whole of the 20th century, maybe one of the worst regimes, you know, so to say that it's, it's a belief system, it's all that stuff, of course it is, but it's also where you are as a person, I think is very mm. important. You know? And interestingly, I, I always say you don't have to go, uh, all, all you have to do is go to, you know, once things reopen again, is go to a gay club and see oppression within the community happening in real time you don't always need to been. go always you... been yeah in the 70s it might have had much more of a, a gentle floral seductive mm. luciferic kind of charm but you know uh, it was always there yeah <laughs> always you know and fleece fleece people of money you know make it extra expensive because it is a gay bar that we all yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's all. Have we gone off the topic of drama therapy a bit here? No, no, no. Uh, probably slightly, but that's okay. <laughs> because uh, a, a big part of this podcast is also to discuss identity. And, um, and, uh, and this is one of your identities, as you said at the start. And, and, um, and, and it's very much part of the conversation of how, of how you see, you know, of how you've seen this changing as a therapist, uh, potentially as a client as well, in the therapy space, you know the the f- change, the ever sort of the changing of identities, the way people describe their identities or label themselves has been changing uh, quite a lot. I, I would I would imagine, mm-hmm. um, and um, how how have you experienced that as a not just as a therapist, but in fact, I was—I'd be quite interested in your perspective as a, as someone who's been a chair of a of an association. You know, where where do those maybe identity struggles come into play once you're chairing a big association? 
Okay, firstly, it's not that big an association. <laughs> it's only it's, about. I think it's. I think the most it's ever been is about eight hundred. You know. Uh, it's I don't still, think it's still a nice there. number of people. But it, it's it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. But um, okay. Uh, my experience of chairing was about a decade ago, nearly now, mm. and the world was different, yeah. even within drama therapy. Mm -hmm. The uh, the things that one can question now, rightly, weren't even on the agenda very very much mm. uh, in in the noughties, uh, really. Um, and so it was a particular time, I think. Mm. Uh, my concerns were less about who am I in relation to my identity and more the service I'm performing in this role. Mm -hmm. I've always, I always saw the chair as being, uh, we're not there for us. We are not even there to put our beliefs into practice. We are here to coordinate the association. It's an association of individuals. It's not a society. People don't join up and take a pledge. It's not a party. It's not a, that kind of an organization. There's no credo. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an association of people who have the same profession, but they might have different trainings, different belief system, different approaches. And it's very wide. You know, you go from ritual theater to psychodynamic to uh, <coughs> occupational therapy type, to action-based therapy, mm. to DVT, to things that are a bit like psychodrama, to story, so many different approaches to the work. Yeah. So really movement-based dance, laban dancing, all that stuff. Mm. So it's a question of being someone who can channel, if you like, uh, the different needs that people bring to the association and got, oh, be part of chair the team that's leading it, which is the executive. So I saw the whole thing as only functional. Mm. Um, I was very uh, aware that the uh, what was called the equal opportunity in those days it was called the equal opportunities. Mm -hmm. and then it became uh, e equality, diversity, and diversity, and and I was very aware that that needed quite a lot of care because mm. people would uh, false foot themselves just by saying something or get somebody upset or whatever and that need quite a lot of care and um the the what's now come up which is certainly I, i've really really been waiting for it to come up because i've held attention in myself about the uh, uh the, the, the bame you know black lives matter yeah. and the, all the bame issues which uh, I, I've, I've said this to other people privately, I think, that I've been carrying within myself this duality. I know I look white and I had the white privileges and I have to acknowledge that and see all that. But inside me, there's a little Tamil boy, mm. you know, and wanting to be acknowledged for who I am. And every time somebody said something about Tamils or the Tamil language, or South Indian, or if I use a, an Indian story, uh, South Indian story, or a story from the Ramayana, or something, it would be, we can't do that, you can't do that, you're European, and I said, I'm only part European, mm. you know, and I would take, and, and people would say, oh, which is why I always put Anglo-Indian there, yeah. Mm -hmm. Every time you read a biog of me, everywhere, Anglo-Indian drama therapist, mm -hmm. you know, Indian born Anglo-Indian because my birth certificate says Indian. Mm -hmm. You see, uh, and my first passport was an Indian passport. I came to England on an Indian passport. 
and people looked at me differently because I was white. So, and, and I was very, uh, obviously I gained the privilege mm. of appearing white. Yeah. But actually I was constantly misread mm. all the time. And if I wanted to say something authentic, about my life in India, someone would say, oh, but you wouldn't know that. that. How would you, that would only be received because you were part of the Raj. And actually I was not part of the Raj. <laughs> I happened to be white. <laughs> and uh, I only, so the, the identity for me was more about the, the ethnicity rather mm. than sexuality identity. Mm. You see, so, yeah. because I mean, I, I just knew a whole bunch of gay drama therapists, gay male drama and not male even, drama therapist, and I felt quite at home. I said, well, you know, we're going to give ourselves a voice of some kind. And we did, bit by bit. Yeah. And I was a little bit disappointed when some of the drama therapists whom I know were gay uh, would, would not actually do anything about it yeah. until Feeling Queer came out. And, you know, and then people said, oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, yes, but, but. So when the, all that started moving in the um, uh, equality uh, uh, subcommittee, I was absolutely delighted. And now, of course, it's gone to another level, yeah. which I think is absolutely brilliant. But that's been my inner conflict all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a huge amount of its attitude, I think, more than real because you can look at the number of black drama therapists and uh, uh, Asian drama therapists uh, around, uh, even within Badtha, which is not that large a number, there are quite a few, you mm -hmm. know, I could name, and they have been active in subcommittees all along, and maybe people don't want to see them. Maybe people have not wanted to see that they were there, mm -hmm. you know, but now I think it's absolutely vital that everyone's got to see everybody, yeah. you know, and say, Okay, that's not enough. You know, you've got to actually recognize when we are taking objection to something that we're taking objection from an already a privileged view. Um, mm. uh, so that that's been my that's more or less been my awareness as a chair that that has been more in my head than the sexuality mm -hmm. or gender thing, really. Yeah. Yeah, uh, is, I feel you're wanting something more. No, no, that's that's great. I, I'm not I'm not looking for anything in particular. I'm just really um, looking for people to share their experiences, and and that's really, um, I guess, significant and 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 helpful to know that you know if if someone has different identities, you know which one of those identities is perhaps the the one you. Um, experienced a more difficulty with uh, yeah. or not uh, so that's really helpful to, to to know and just be mindful of and and I like what you said about the the need for things to just be visible uh, and uh, and even though I'm not perfectly happy with the new name of the subcommittee it, part of the change was about that was to because I felt equality and diversity was uh, there are terms that are a bit dead they don't mean much anymore and I wanted to to change that with the with the rest of the because they don't necessarily they, they don't necessarily mean the same thing, of course. You know, no. quality and diversity. You know, you know. And then if you point out diversity, if you point out difference, are you being racist? You mm. know, the, the, some people say, well, you can't say that. You know, I said, well, well, why not? You know, why? You know, oh, you're exotic. Yeah, there's a whole tradition, and what what I'm always on the lookout for is 
amongst my white brothers and sisters, uh, that there's a kind of defense that comes from an un probably unconscious positioning themselves with regard to that movement called Orientalist movement, you know, mm. Edward Said, and where they exoticized uh, people from other ethnicities and other cultures in photographs and sort of rarefied them for mm. a particular market. There was whole Orientalist society, so Asiatics and Orientalist uh, society. It was prominent. I, I mean, I was aware of them because I brought up in India and I saw the Orientalist. And I think it was Edward Said, I think, was a big Orientalist writer. I may be wrong, but somebody who knows me <laughs> correct uh, that. Uh, and I think there's an inbuilt thing about either not necessarily seeing somebody from a different ethnicity to white European or white American or whatever, mm. but um, but seeing them and then making more of it than they've actually seen. Like, oh, you're so important. You're so wonderful. You're so brilliant. You're the only one who you, you, I'm really good to have you on. So it all becomes too much. Mm. And then it all sits on somebody like, you know, so, oh, Bruce, the number of times I get, tell us about your Anglo-Indian thing. I said, no, I'm not <laughs> going to. I'll tell you why I'm there. I said, you can read my book, you know, read my book. You know, there's a chapter in there that talks about mix, the mix and mediation, you know, and the very fact that one is mixed is a kind of mediation already. So it depends on how you relate to being mixed. Yeah. But the problem, I, as I was saying, the problem I have is when white people pretend that actually everything's okay. You know, because because so-and-so person heads the employment subcommittee, because so-and-so person has written something in this, uh, and one happens to be from uh, Africa, one happens to be from India, and they're making prominence. But so what? That doesn't mean to say that the institution is any less open, any less... Inter and I think that, I think this is bound to change. It's yeah. bound to change with the, the World uh, Association of Drama Therapists. It's already begun to question itself, I think, in some ways. The very fact that drama therapy is rising in India. Mm. Uh, and I went and did a masterclass in February on Ramayana. And that, of course, had a problem because there were people saying, well, you know, India with, with the Indian government now, the politics comes in and kind of goes, Bleh, you know. Yeah. But the people that were doing the workshop were quite understanding. It wasn't about the politics of Hindutva, it was about the, the, the received mythology that actually, you know, people go to stories about Siegfried and um, uh, 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 Parsifal and uh, uh, European stories when they're doing their stories in drama, quite, not, not always, but some, and yet there are a wealth of stories in the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. And, and I said, well, why don't you tap into that? There are role models within that that you can use for your healing. There's a whole Ayurvedic healing that you can touch mm. on and feel. So that was fine. And Nisha Sajnani went there before me to Bangalore to their conference. And so I think it's all this is going to change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it had to have a starting point. Yeah, and that starting point was very late in coming, in my opinion, in Britain anyway. Mm. I don't know. Maybe that's because of our insularity, our in, inward looking. I, I don't know why, why it would be. I don't want to ascribe a, a cause, but um, but I think that's going to definitely change. And people are going to have to automatically become more aware that, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's going to be a lot different. It yeah. has to. Yeah, definitely. That, 
article about the uh, drama therapy, the, the drama course in uh, Central, uh, that was in the uh, in newspaper, was it the Mirror, where a lot of students were talking about uh, what they discovered to be discriminatory behavior. Oh yeah, at the Central School. The in uh, not yeah. in the drama there, not the drama. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. The drama. There was yes. a, a quite a, a, a major article there. That mm. that I thought, oh wow, about time. I thought. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I said, I hope it hasn't gone into, but you know, there, uh, yeah, I mean, I can't talk about it, but there's a whole bunch of stuff I know about as a therapist and supervisor mm. from client, student clients Yeah, that if I, if we, if we, and I know other therapists and I have spoken about it as well, that if we were to talk about it, that would open a number of eyes mm. uh, about how students have felt while they were on the course yeah yeah students who are uh of a different background mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting in the subcommittee we do hear a lot of that and i think that's what fuels much of our work um and as you know uh a lot of the subcommittee work is is voluntary so that always sometimes takes it, its toll as well we we yeah. cannot always move as fast as we want or, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but we're moving and, and that's. Try the executive. That also I... <laughs> Yeah. I'll, I'll hold off on that one. Yes, please um, do. <laughs> we we're just coming to the end of our, of our time. Yeah. And I'm just gonna ask you uh, sort of some final questions. And at the start when you were actually talk about the such a gorgeous paradox expression you mentioned <coughs> that joy is very much part of that paradox um and uh and i'm asking everyone what uh, what gives you joy and and what and how do you maintain that in your in your life oh wow <laughs> uh Joy is actually part of every single password I use for every single device I have. <laughs> Probably something, shouldn't something, be something, saying something that in public. Joy. <laughs> or something, something, joy, something, something. Um, yeah. One of my, he, he died before I was born, but one of my inspiring people in India mm. uh, always said, where is your joy? Where is your joy? Where do you go when you are in deep sleep? Where is your joy? And how about a little patience? Because mm. it's all going to happen anyway. Mm. It's all going to happen anyway. Where do you go when you're in deep sleep? And where? what is your joy? And the word joy has always been important to me, still is. Uh, where do I get my joy from? Uh, being as wicked as I can, <laughs> uh, winding things up, trying to push things as much as I can, not taking things too seriously. Mm. Um, I used to love sex mm. and I used to love going out and dancing and having love that brought me physical joy. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, joy comes from quiet things as well for me it, from different places, you know, being at the beach, being on my own solitude with my plants in my allotment, my flowers and mm -hmm. my plants, you know, that brings me joy. When I when I put something down and or uh, someone's with me and they're laughing, someone mm. laughs uh, and it could be at anything and I say wow, 
we can still laugh. We can still, we, that's my joy. Yeah, nice. Um, and now to, to end, I have five words and um, I wanted you to free associate any words that come to you or images um, okay. that come with those words. So the first word is feel. Love. Second word is love. <laughs> Light. Grow. Sitting. Connect. Silence. And uh, heal. Being. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Bruce, for your for your time. I hope everyone enjoys this I hope episode. That out okay, and it's not uh, <laughs> too much. <laughs> it's never too much. Um, but thank you so much. Uh, bye, bye, Ryan. Thank for you. Your time. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Uh, it's it's quite an honor, really. I think it is. It is. I don't like words like honor. They're a bit pretentious. Uh, mm. Kind of up your arse somewhere. But actually, no. Uh, thank you. It is honor. Thank you. Thank you. It's been bye a bye. pleasure. Bye. Bye.